If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me in them to Genesis 15. Last time we were together, we focused our time on the hope that we have in the midst of unknowns through Genesis 15, verse 1, where God told Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. We recognized in that that it was not explicitly in that moment that God was telling Abraham that he would shield him and reward him, although we know that that is true, but rather that he was, that God was his shield. God was his reward. And we connected that to what we found in Hebrews chapter 11 as Paul speaks of Abram among the others who showed faith and that they were living not for that day. They, they did not receive the promise in their day. These all died having not received the promise, but having seen it afar off. Not just speaking of the idea that uh, Abram's, uh, Abram would not have a great nation in his day, but it would be several generations before that would be realized, but that they were looking for a different set of promises, that they had committed themselves to the Lord on a different Plane, and that was a plane of faith, that they had believed the Lord, they had believed His promises, and that, that in doing so, they recognized a heavenly home, a heavenly city, a heavenly kingdom unto which they were going and for which they were serving. This is the kind of faith that sustains us in those days of fear, in those days of vulnerability, so that we can echo what we find in Paul's day. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am, Philippians chapter 4, Therewith to be content. I can do all things, verse 13 says, through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Now, we considered that one verse last week, God's message to Abram in that day. God's intent of encouraging Abram in that day. But what we did not do is necessarily see how Abram responded. And so today we're going to continue looking at verses 2 through 6 and step into this, well, really one of the most consequential, pa consequential passages in all of the Old Testament, showing us the consistency throughout scriptures of God's purpose of man's righteousness by grace through faith alone. From the first man to the last man, God's man's righteousness, any righteousness that we have has only been, ever been, by faith. So we read this in Genesis chapter 15. We'll read all six verses of our text today. The Bible says, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in mine house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he, that would be Abram, believed in the Lord. And he, that would be the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, for righteousness. So again, we talked already about God's initiation in verse 1. Abram was in this state of vulnerability, this state of unknown. He had done what he thought as the Lord had asked him to, and perhaps he was wondering, did I, did I do enough? Did I, did I do it right? Uh, why, why have I not uh, received of, of the promises that the Lord said? Uh, and it's not that he had not received of them. He was well and in the land, but he extrapolated, Right? He said, well, if I'm, if I'm to become a great nation, then I need to have a child because I can't ha become a great nation if I don't have any, any posterity, if I don't have anyone that comes after me. And we talked last week about the idea that sometimes we can erect in our minds what we expect God to do, how we expect God to bring about the circumstances uh, that, that are in our lives, that we might have a, an understanding of what we believe the Lord wants to do through us or wants to do in us. And then we put into our minds the way that we are, we are, we are convinced that God is going to bring it about. And when it doesn't happen that way, that can be a very vulnerable place for us. And so we walked through all of that last week. 
But then as God replies to Abram in, in Abram's uh, heart of confusion and says, I am thy shield, I am thy exceeding great reward, and thus exhorts him not to fear, Abram replies and he says to the Lord, well, what wilt thou give me? Seeing I go childless. God, how can you give me the promises you said you were going to give me seeing that I don't have a child? Seeing that I don't have anyone to carry on my name, how can I be a great nation? How can I become a great people? How can you bless my seed if I don't have any? How can you say that you are my reward, Lord? You've promised me that my seed would be as the sand of the sea, and yet I go childless. And if I were to die today, all of my possessions would go to this man, Eliezer of Damascus, who was his chief steward. And so Abram sums up his perspective of the situation in verse 3. Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. My heir is not born of my seed, it's just a servant born in my house. And so Abram is discouraged and, and, and he's confused. And again, this is somewhat natural. This is not uncommon. Christian, it's not uncommon for you to be in a place where you don't know what God is doing. This is, this is not even an a, a unexpected place for us to be in, where we see what's happening and we, we, we've been taking steps and we're doing what we're supposed to do, or maybe we're not, and, and, and that may be a part of it, but, but even if we are, even if we're taking those steps and serving the Lord, where we come to those crossroads, where we don't exactly know what's going on, or where we're tired, or, or, or we're discouraged, and we just simply don't know what's next. And so Abram is asking these questions here and notice that God does not get angry with him. Notice that God does not get frustrated with him. God is yeah, being very patient with him, but I, I think that, that God would naturally believe these questions to be reasonable. But just because they're reasonable, this does not mean that God is under any obligation to tell all, right? As a matter of fact, God specifically chooses not to tell Abram, nonetheless, what he is doing. Notice how God responds in verses 4 and 5. This shall not be thine heir. In other words, this man, this steward, Eliezer of Damascus, this is not going to be your heir, Abram. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And the idea there, of course, uh, we, you know, we, when, we, when we talk about the bowels, we recognize various body parts and such. But the idea here is one that would come out of his, out, out of his own, one that would be connected to his own bloodline is the idea here that God is saying. And he brought him forth abroad and said, look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. So Eliezer of Damascus, he will not be your heir, God says. Your heir will come out of your own bloodline, not simply be one born in your household. And then in order to give him a perspective and to drive the point home, in order to help him relate himself to this promise, and, and here's why God does this. Uh, one of the things that we have a tendency to do uh, when we get confused about what God is doing is we, we, we have a tendency to reinterpret what God has said in order to try to give God an out as to why he hasn't done what we believe he said he ought to do for us. And so in order that, that Abram does not get into this, this place of saying, well, God has said that there would be one from my own bowels and, and the Eliezer of Damascus would not be my heir. Uh, and yet I still don't have a child. And, and so maybe, maybe the idea here is, is that I need to reinterpret what it means that, that, that my seed will be blessed in multitudes. Right. And so God says, no, 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 don't do that. Come out. And he, and he brings him outside. He takes him abroad. The idea is he brings him outside and he has him look up at the stars. Now, there are a lot of stars uh, up there. Now, well, light pollution and such means that on any given night as you look up, uh, you may not see that many stars. But if you've ever been uh, where there is no light pollution, where, where there aren't a great deal of city lights and you look up. I remember when I was younger, I had a good friend and uh, he lived out um, significantly farther south than where I lived in Colorado and um, pr pretty far away from everything. And uh, we would go out at night and we'd get up on his roof and we'd just lay up on the roof and we'd look out at the stars and, and uh, you could actually see the band of the Milky Way and it was just fa fascinating and magnificent to see how many stars are up there. And he tells Abram, if you can number the stars, so shall thy seed be. Now, remember some weeks ago, when we were talking about how we choose to interpret the Bible, we, we talked about that idea of interpreting the Bible naturally. And the idea of interpreting the Bible naturally is a little bit of a, 
uh, of, of a, an adjustment to what has characteristically been uh, the, the orthodox position of, of interpretation, where we'd say literally, contextually, grammatically, historically. Uh, and and that, that word literally uh, has gotten some people into trouble. Right? And that's why we have changed that to naturally, because we don't take every single thing that the Bible says directly literally. Instead, we recognize when there are various um, um, linguistic uh, strategies being used, and we want to accommodate for those. So if there is exaggeration, if there is metaphor, if there is simile, if there is uh, poetic expressions, we don't necessarily take those directly literally, because then we find ourselves in a very confused place as it relates to trying to correspond what God is saying to reality. Instead, we interpret naturally. So when, a, when we're in historical narrative and something is being spoken in order that it might be understood, and we see that there's a direct statement being made, well, then we take that as literally as it would be if I made a direct statement to you uh, that this plant is green. You take that literally. This plant is green. And that is a literal statement. There's no need to, um, to uh, allegorize that statement. There's no need to uh, put, put any sort of a spin on that statement. It's just a statement of fact, and we take it as such. Uh, but then we can also recognize various times where poetic expressions and metaphors and such mean that we are not going to take that statement literally as we would some direct statement of fact, but instead we are going to look for what it is that God or, or the writer is attempting to express through what he is saying and take it, if we can say it this way, as naturally or as literally as possible within the scope of the linguistic the linguistic strategies that the person is using. So when we see God say here, within the scope of this context, that, that God tells Abram that his seed would be as the stars, if you can number them, it would not be appropriate to say that Abram will have the exact number of descendants as there are a number of stars. Right? So that as people try to estimate the number of stars, well, things can't move forward until the number of Abraham's descendants, depending on what you would say that to be. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Spiritually or literally have to be the exact number of stars. And of course, scientists have estimated the number of stars that there are in the universe and, and, and such. And we're not going to get into all of that today. But, but we don't need to take that this literally. This would be an inaccurate assessment of what God is attempting to do through bringing Abram outside, having him look up at the stars and say, count the stars, tell the stars, if thou be able to number them, so shall thy seed be. Rather, what God is saying here is that just as you can't number the stars, so too your descendants will be innumerable. In other words, there's going to be a lot of them. Not putting a direct number on it, not attempting it to literally connect the number of stars to the number of Abraham's descendants. We don't need to go there. Uh, there's no reason to go there. It doesn't even really make sense that, that God would be telling Abraham that in that sense. Abram's not going to be able to count the stars. He doesn't need to because that's not the point. Right? The point is that there's going to be a lot of descendants that Abram was not misunderstanding God when God said that his descendants would be great in Multitude. So God is allowing Abram to understand that, that, that Abram didn't misunderstand God. Notice what God did not do, though. God didn't tell him how. God did not explain everything. And there's a reason why God did not explain everything. See, God could have told us everything, right, in the book. We already have a pretty big book. I don't know that it would have troubled God to make it a little bit bigger and to tell us everything. God could have modified the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ simply to just lay it all out for us. He didn't do that, did he? God could have modified the manner in which he leads through the Holy Spirit to simply make it step by step, just follow a checklist and be done with it. But he didn't do that. As a matter of fact, through Jesus Christ, he kind of got away from the whole checklist thing, didn't he? There's a different way. God has chosen a different way. And he's chosen that different way as a reflection of the thing in his character that he wants from us. God certainly wants man's obedience. But as we study the covenants, we recognize that man's obedience cannot boil down to just a checklist. It doesn't work that way. Much to the contrary, what God has always wanted, that obedience that God has always wanted 
that thing that, 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 that truly pleases the Lord has been and always will be faith. So God uses this metaphor of sorts as a means by which to connect Abram closer to the meaning of God's promise that he will have a child, it will be of his own bloodline, and then in the context of this child, from his own bloodline, he promises that Abram's descendants would be many. So here's the situation then as we find it. Abram is discouraged. He has no child. His wife is barren. They're both getting old. He's wondering if he misunderstood God's promises, if he misinterpreted God's intentions, if somehow he missed out on what God had for him. So God comes to him in that moment of vulnerability, in that moment of unknown, in that moment of doubt, and reminds him that he is, that God is his shield, his reward. Abram then responds in confusion, and he says, well, but how is that possible, considering the circumstances within which I find myself? And God does not choose to say, this is how it's going to happen. Instead, God simply says, trust me, it's possible. Operative word being trust. He didn't give Abram a timetable. He simply reiterated the promise. And the Bible says Abram responded in this way, verse 6. And he, that would be Abram, believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Abram believed the revealed word of God. God had not seen fit to reveal to Abram everything. But to the extent that God had revealed himself, to the extent that God had given to Abram promises, Abram committed himself in faith to God. And this is what it's always meant. To believe. You know, we use that word believe, and like with many words in any language, a, a word can be modified over time, right? A word can change meaning over time. And there's, uh, within the English vernacular, as there is in every language, uh, words are modified in meaning as the culture uses them in one way, shape, or form. To believe in the biblical sense is not the idea of knowing something to be true. I don't believe something just because I know it I don't believe something just because I know it is true. In the biblical sense, the idea of believing is to commit oneself to a truth. And that takes knowing it. And that takes acknowledging it to be true. But far beyond just acknowledging something to be true, belief is when I commit myself to that truth. To the extent that you found your thoughts and your actions upon that truth, this is faith. When what you know becomes what you believe and so affects what you do. We will often use the analogy of something like a chair. And I can tell everybody in here that I believe that this chair will hold me up when I sit in it. And I can say, I know it to be true. I can look at it and I can see that it has four legs and I can see that it looks generally sound and it's made out of materials that, are, uh, that, that have a measure of integrity. And I can say, this chair will hold me up it, when and if I sit in it. And that's all well and good. But if then, when it's time to sit down, I don't sit in the chair... Well, I can still say I know that to be true, but that's not actually reflective of me believing it. Because if I believed it, then I'd sit down in it. If I took a bunch of pillows and I put it underneath the chair, and then I sat down in it, okay, well, I did commit myself to it, but only after I took the steps necessary to guard myself against it collapsing under my weight. Which means when I sat down, I didn't actually believe when I sat down that it was going to do what I said I believed it was going to do. Belief is when I actually exercise faith in the thing that I said I believed. Belief is when what I know, faith, becomes, is when what I know becomes what I believe and so affects what I do. Now we'll talk more about that next time when we're in our message together. Specifically, we'll talk more about the effects what I do part next time we're together, next Sunday morning. And I say that because this statement, Abram believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness is one of the most consequential statements in our whole Bible. This statement forms the foundation for our understanding that from the day of man's fall to sin, righteousness has always been by grace through 
faith. Never has God established a system whereby righteousness in man would be established through his own efforts or his own capabilities. Never did God accept a man's as righteous on a man's own merit. Abram was counted righteous when he believed the revealed word of the Lord. And this is the idea behind the word justification. The idea of justification is when I am reckoned righteous on account of, in our case, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Abram received with full faith the word of God as it had been revealed unto him. And when he received in full faith the word of God, this was sufficient for God to then declare Abram righteous. And it's that phrase, counted it to him for righteousness, that I would like to devote our time to, not just with the remainder of today, but over the next several weeks as well. We find this this verse, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, uh, invoked in three major passages of Scripture in our New Testament. The first is in Romans chapter 4. The second is in Galatians chapter 3. And the third is in James chapter 2. Now, there's a natural overlap between the way Paul and James invoke Genesis 15, but there are also some very real distinctions between uh, the intent of each of those particular passages as it relates to how it is that they are using and the manner in which they are reflecting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. So this week, I'd like us to talk about Romans chapter 4 and see how it is that Paul uses Romans chapter 4 to teach Uh, or uses Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 in Romans 4 to teach a lesson about righteousness by faith alone. Then next week, we're going to talk about James 2. And we're going to see James talk about this idea that faith without works is dead. And he invokes Abram once again, Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, to orient ourselves to that. And we're going to talk about that as well and see that, as, as I said, when we talk about the definition of faith being when what I know becomes what I believe and so affects what I do, we're going to talk about the relationship between believing and doing. And then finally, we're going to talk about Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to see the nature of our relationship between faith and doing from the idea of guarding ourselves against trusting what we do to establish who we are before the Lord, putting the cart before the horse. It is not uncommon for us as Christians to allow what we do to be the definition of faith rather than to allow our faith to define what we do. And we want to guard ourselves against that. So we're going to talk about that in Galatians chapter 3. And then after that, we'll ask this question, who is Abraham's seed? And then we can move on from this passage. So we've got some work to do. And as I said, today, we're going to talk about Romans chapter 4. Another one of our important notes in our foundational sermons on interpretation as we led into Genesis chapter 15 was that as we interpret the Bible, we had talked about interpreting naturally or literally. We also talked about interpreting contextually. When someone writes me a letter, I don't begin reading in paragraph four. I begin reading in paragraph one. Once I understand the context, I might re-reference the things that are in paragraph four individually, but only with deference to and in light of what we have already understood through paragraphs one through three. And while that may not be as important as we get into uh, James chapter 2 and Galatians chapter 3, that we rehash the context, I believe it's very important in Romans that we start in the context and we work our way through the context to get to what Paul is saying about Abraham in Romans 4. So let's briefly summarize Romans chapters 1 through 3, and then we'll talk Romans 4. Paul begins Romans, if I may say it this way, laser-focused on the gospel. This is, in fact, the theme of the first five chapters of Romans explicitly. Paul tells them that the gospel is the power of God into salvation. He says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then in Romans 1, verses 19 through 32, Paul states that all men know and understand this. 
Now all men know and understand this first through creation itself, that there is a God in heaven, that that God has all power and all authority, and that they are accountable to this God. But, Paul says, humanity has chosen to reject this knowledge, that though the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even God's eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, that's Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Yet man has instead, no, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, but became vain in their own imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And as mankind has chosen to reject this knowledge and instead elevate themselves to the position of God in their own minds, they deny God's authority. They invert truth. They invert justice. They worship the creator rather th- uh, the, the creature rather than the creator. And in doing so, they receive the consequences of rebellion with verses 29 through 32 listing those consequences. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without natural understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So the Bible says that as man rejects the knowledge of God, that they fall into a place of rebellion where they elevate themselves above God and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. God gives them over to wickedness. And as he gives them over to wickedness, they in themselves and a culture which does the same will begin to exhibit these characteristics of wickedness whereby they fall so far outside of truth because they are so vehement at rejecting the light that is found in the created world, not just through the fingerprints of God on the design of this world physically, but the fingerprints of God on the design of this world spiritually. And so every moral truth reflected in the word of God becomes an offense to them. So that even going so far as to to see the moral truths that are baked into creation as an offense to them. That God has made them men men and woman, male and female. It's offensive to one who is insistent upon rejecting the authority of God. That a man should leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. This is offensive to those who are seeking to reject the authority of God because even these elements reflect truth into society just by nature of their being there. And so Paul says that they, knowing that they, having done these things, are worthy of death, not only do them, because they know God's eternal power and Godhead, not only do they do these things, but they have pleasure in them that do them. In other words, they celebrate their sin. They celebrate their rebellion. They lift it up as a good thing, as Isaiah would write in his day, that they have called good evil and evil good. And this is, this, this is what happens when man rejects God. Now, as Paul continues, though, There are two types of people that he's writing to. Well, he's writing to one type of people. But as Paul anticipates what he's writing here and how it would be received among the the Roman church, he anticipates two different types of people reading this, this description. The first would be the believers of the gospel. Those that have accepted Jesus Christ by, by, by grace through faith. They've been saved. They have the Spirit of God. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. They understand their own sin and they have fled to Christ for grace in the midst of the realities of their own sinfulness. That when the creation and conscience testified to them of the reality of God, when they heard God's word and Jesus Christ's salvation, they fled to God for salvation because they knew that they were as an unclean thing and all of their righteousnesses were as filthy rags. But Paul actually does anticipate a second group 
here. And that group would be the group of the religious. The man who has accepted a moral framework into his life and is convinced that because he is living according to the moral framework that's reflected in the Bible, that that means that he in and of himself has achieved the righteousness that God desires through his own efforts. Through this moral framework, he is convinced, he he is very happy to judge the rebellion of the rest of the world rejoicing that he is not like them, living in such a state of wickedness and depravity, believing at the same time that his own moral and religious framework has established him as a righteous man. And that's who Paul then addresses next. Naturally, within this context, we would believe that to be in that day specifically the Jewish man, right? the man who has elevated the law and who is living according to the law and that law has worked in him self-righteousness. He has the law and he has gone about to establish his own righteousness through the law. He believes he's a good person because he follows biblical morality. So Paul says in Romans 2 verses 1 and 2, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same thing. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. Paul, Paul, Paul excuse me, first tells that the gospel is necessary for the rebel. That's chapter 1. For the man who has denied God, who has shaken his fists at God, who, knowing the judgment of God that people that do such things are worthy of death, not only does those things but rejoices, takes pleasure in them that do them living in the dramatic negative consequences of his sin. But then Paul says, you know what? The gospel is not just for that man. The gospel is also for the moral man. The man that has gone about to establish his own righteousness through acts of well-doing. The man who then elevates himself above others and says, God must certainly accept me Because at least I'm not like those people. God must certainly accept me because whereas they do these wicked things, I do these good things. Remember, most who had been saved in the places that Paul went, at least initially, were Jewish people. The appeal to Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures was powerful in the hearts of Jewish men and women who had had those scriptures for generations. And it is apparent, as Paul speaks to the readers of Romans, that he is speaking to people whom he assumes have a working knowledge of the Old Testament and are personally invested in the Old Testament. So that as Paul references the moral man, we would imagine that he is speaking to the Jew of his day. And Paul reminds this man in verse 11 of chapter 2, there is no respecter of persons with God. And that because... Just because you're a moral man, excuse me, being a moral man does not make you a righteous man. That just because you have rejected the direction that, that, that the, the wicked in this world have gone to absolutely and utterly reject all the light that shines through creation and conscience, all of the tenets of the Word of God, that just because you have lived under the, some of those Structures does not make you a righteous man. And the reason why is because God does not just judge actions. God also judges the secrets of the heart. And this leads to a discussion, in the discussion, to Paul's concluding thoughts on this, which we find in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Paul says, As it is written... There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Notice here that Paul's concluding thought is not an original thought. 
These are quotes. It's not a singular quote, but rather quoting concepts found all throughout, particularly the Psalms. We read in these verses concepts from Psalm 5, verse 9, Psalm 10, verse 7, Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, Psalm 36, verse 1, Psalm 53, verses 2 and 3, Psalm 140, verse 3. We also read an idea that's reflective of Isaiah chapter 59, verse 7. All of these Old Testament scriptures, however, telling the nation of Israel among the nations of the world the same thing, that no man, no matter how rebellious against God morally or how aligned with God's design morally, no man is in and of himself righteous. No man measures up to God's standard. You don't measure up. I don't measure up. No one measures up. All men are sinners. All men have come short of the glory of God. And indeed, that's what the Bible says in Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And because of this, every man is guilty. No matter how moral, no matter how much he tries, no matter how, uh, how disciplined he is, every man is a sinner and every man has fallen short. And so here it is that Paul reinserts the gospel. I already quoted verse 23, but in verses 20 to 26, Paul then reinforces and inserts the gospel into this discussion. He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, verse 20 of Romans 3, there shall no flesh be justified in his, that's God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that, them that believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That whether you're a Romans chapter 1 guy and you're living in that, that place of wickedness and licentiousness and rebellion, or whether you're that Romans chapter 2 guy who is comparing yourself to others and saying, well, at least I must be righteous because at least I'm not like the world around me. And though I, so I can judge them and I can judge myself against them because that's the essence of judgment, right? The essence of judgment is when I'm comparing myself to others in order to elevate myself. Paul says it doesn't matter because by the deeds of the law, there is no flesh justified in his sight for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. I love this aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is the great spiritual leveler as it relates to our relationship with God. That there is no, no one higher or lower when it comes to the state that you find yourself in before God. That just because I grew up in a Christian family and was relatively protected from various aspects of the dangers of the world that are around me, that that does not put me any nearer to righteousness than the person who grew up in absolute rebellion and squalor. Because I'm a sinner and he's a sinner. I love that every week when I sit before those people in the jail, I can sit across from that man in the jail and I can say, I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. And before God, we are both on this level playing field at the beginning, which is, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what does this do? What does this reality do? Well, this frees God up then to have mercy on us all. Without statement to advantage, without statement to privilege, without statement to class, without... Statement to economic standing. God is free to have mercy on all because we are all unrighteous. Paul contrasts thus the deeds of the law and faith. The solution to the problem both of Romans 1 and Romans 2. The solution to the problem of the rebellious and the wicked is not the deeds of the law. 
The solution to chapter 1 is not chapter 2, in other words. The deeds of the law are not the solution to the rebellion of man. Moral reformation will never do the job of making a man righteous. Spiritual reformation is what will do the job of making a man righteous. It is not the righteous deeds of men, but the righteous deed of God. Witnessed by the law and the prophets, brought through faith in Jesus Christ. So that the man who is justified is justified freely by God's grace, secured by Jesus' payment through his death on the cross. What Romans chapter 3, verse 25 called Jesus being a propitiation, that word meaning a satisfaction for our sins. But not through our moral efforts, rather through Jesus Christ's blood alone. And through this, God is able to do two things that we would imagine are utterly in contradiction one to another. Remember, we talked about Abram. And Abram could not understand how it is possible that he could not have a child and his wife be barren and then both old and Sarah being beyond the years of having a child while simultaneously be able to become a great nation. And those didn't make sense to him. But if you've read through, through Genesis, you know that God makes it work. Well, imagine being in the Old Testament and trying to figure out how it could be. Imagine reading Romans 1 and 2 without knowing the rest of the story and trying to figure out how it could be that God could both be a God of justice, be a God who punishes sin when all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and still justify any man. Those are contradictory. How can, I, how can my sin be paid for without me spending an eternity in separation from him if that's the consequence for my sin? Enter Jesus. He takes the consequence for my sin in his own body and thus God is free to be both just because his justice was poured out on Jesus and to justify the ungodly by grace through faith. So God can be both just in that he punishes sin and also justify those who come to him by faith. And then this is where Paul turns to Genesis 15. He says in verses 1 through 5 of Romans 4, What shall we say then? That Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found. Notice here he calls him our father as pertaining to the flesh. Paul is still kind of referencing a Jewish audience here. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scriptures? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And this is the conclusion, isn't it? Paul asks a question speci specifically, again, within the context of the Jewish thinker. Related to this idea that there's none righteous, there's none that understand, there's none that seek after God, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he says, what did the patriarchs find? What did our father Abraham find in his day? Did he find that he was righteous through his own efforts, through his own merits? Well, indeed not. What Abraham found, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, is that he believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He was not justified by works. It was not his doing that led to his justification. It was his faith. To the man that does not work, is the reward, uh, excuse me, to the man who works, the reward is not reckoned of grace, but of debt, Paul says. The idea being this, that if there's anything about the, my work, if there's anything about the manner in which I have lived my life, which is meritorious before God, then God owes me what I get. If it has something to do with my works, then, then God giving me a reward is a reward of debt. God is simply paying me what I've earned. But he says, if it's not about works, but rather about him that believes on him that justifies the ungodly, well, then this faith is counted for righteousness. If my actions are sufficient to secure my righteousness, then God owes me that righteousness. 
and God owes me all of its rewards. I've earned those. But if my actions are not sufficient in any way, if even my righteousnesses, Isaiah 64, 6, are as filthy rags, then regardless of how good or bad I may be, if I flee to God for His grace and He declares me righteous, then I am righteous. And then it's not reckoned of debt. It's not because God owed me anything, but it's because of what He did. And we know that this is the system. We know that this is the gospel. We speak of this regularly. My rewards are not the rewards of my works. Even the rewards on the day of rewards are rewards of faith. We talked about that in Hebrews. I can reference you to that sermon if you're curious about that. And this is the gospel. Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sins of mankind. And that if I believe that, I will be saved. But what Paul shows us here is that this system is not new with Jesus' life and death. Yes, Jesus' life and death secured, the, it was, it's the power, right? It secured the reality of this promise. But the essence of this idea, the operating principle of, uh, of righteousness by faith in the revealed word of God has been there from the beginning. And while we might see it, at least in part, in the actions of Adam and Eve and of Enoch and of Noah, it is not until this man Abraham that the reality of justification by faith becomes firmly cemented in God's revelation to mankind. Yes, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that grace was dependent upon his faith that God would bring that flood. And his faith compelled him to build an ark to the saving of his household. And so became the reward of his faith in salvation. But it is with Abraham that we find the statement made directly. There's no statement that says Noah believed the Lord and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It is in Abraham's day that we see this. It, this faith that Abraham had, was his righteousness. He did not earn it. God owed Abraham nothing. God declared Abraham righteous as a response to the faith that Abraham put in God's revealed word unto him. And in God's grace, Abram also owed God nothing. Now, as Paul continues the argument, he then proves that justification never required the law. And it was given to Abraham, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision, right? This justification was not through uh, any exterior act, including the act of circumcision. We'll talk about that a little bit later as we talk about what is Abraham's seed, and then we we get to the time where God has Isaac, uh, uh, commands that Isaac will be circumcised, and that's a little bit later. For this week, however, we rest in, in, in this idea, this applicable principle from Romans chapter 4, hearkening back to Genesis 15. And I've shared the gospel several times over the course of these weeks in Genesis 15. I don't believe there's any of, our, of those who have regularly listened to me who are ignorant of what the gospel says. That you are a sinner. That your sin has separated you from God. That as we saw today, every single one of us is a sinner. It doesn't matter how moral of a life we've led. It doesn't matter how hard we've tried. There is none righteous. No, not one. There's none that do good. There's none that seek after God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And this great leveling of the playing field allows us then to receive of God's mercy so that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And the Bible tells us, Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you will, like Abraham did in his day, believe in the revealed Word of God to you, then God will count that faith that is in your life to you as righteousness so that you will be declared righteous. For the Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But I want us as well this morning, and if you've never done that today, make today the day. Make today the day where you submit yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ, where you call upon the Lord to be saved from your sins. You place your full faith and trust in Jesus to be your righteousness because you can't be it for yourself. But I'd like us to think about this also on another layer. 
When Romans 4, verses 4 and 5 says, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. This verse speaks certainly to the reality of accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior, that the man who attempts to work his way into salvation, to, to that, that right relationship with God, will find himself falling desperately short. But in this, I remind you that this is not just the template for the unbeliever to come to Christ. This is also the template for what it means to live in Christ. Maybe you've come to Christ by grace through faith. And now that you believe, you live under the constant pressure to feel like you need to measure up to God's moral standard. After all, you're a follower of Christ. You're a Christian. You have a testimony. And you're trying so hard. And you're frustrated. And you've tried to discipline yourself and you've fallen short. And then there's something that kind of happens in a Christian's life when, that, when, when, when they find themselves in that spot. They kind of divide their life in two. Because you feel like you should be this, but you're this. You say, well, this is what I want to be, but this is what I am. So what if I just start pretending to be what I want to be? So that everyone thinks I'm that. And you clean yourself up to come to church. And you clean yourself up to interact with people that are around you. So that people don't know that you're struggling. So that people don't know that your life is, is, is in a difficult spot. Or your marriage is in a difficult spot. Or whatever it might be. And then you just grit your teeth and you accomplish this task of being righteous. But here's what happens when you do that. In your effort to appear righteous, you no longer have the spiritual grace or strength necessary to work on what you need to work on. And you simply become a hypocrite. But consider with me instead the nature of God's grace. His design through grace. Grace is not a system of works, Christian. A system of works will always engender a system of debt. If you, even as a believer, attempt to work your way into obedience, then God owes you something on the back end. But never does the Bible say, even when discussing those crowns in heaven or the rewards of righteousness, that God owes them to you. The system that God established is a system of grace from beginning to end. Consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 about his own efforts unto obedience. He says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul acknowledges to the Corinthian church that everything that he is as a man, as an apostle of the Gentiles, is through the grace of God. And he tells them that this grace compelled him, and naturally so, that when he recognized the grace of God that was given unto him, it compelled him to labor with all his might to walk worthy of that. And we see that in the scriptures. We see in Colossians chapter 1. We see in Ephesians chapter 1 the call that we would walk worthy of that vocation. That's not a wrong thing. But Paul says even in these labors, even as he labored more abundantly than they all, even as he put all of his effort into serving the Lord with all of his might, because that is the natural thing that the grace of God being shown into our hearts should compel us to do, Paul says the only way I could ever possibly do it was through God's grace. Grace from beginning to end. And today perhaps you're struggling. You're in a place of frustration or confusion. You're struggling with sin. You fall short of what the Bible says you ought to be as a follower of Christ. And perhaps that's because you've stepped into this salvation by grace through faith. And then you have determined that now everything is up to you. That now that you say you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's simply up to you to grit your teeth, discipline yourself, and make yourself look like what you're supposed to look like by whatever standard that is. 
You come into Legacy Baptist Church and we have an elevated, uh, uh, elevated dress and, and, and pastors in a suit and, and, and we, we, we sing uh, hymns and, and, and higher worship music and you say, aha, this is what a Christian looks like. I've got to become this. So you grit your teeth and your knuckles are white and you say, I'm just going to become this. Well, where's grace in that Christian? This is never the system that God has put in place. And at the risk of stealing from my application when we get to Galatians, because that's what we're going to be talking about in a couple weeks, God's design is grace from beginning to end, faith from beginning to end. What is it that pleases God, Christian? Is it the way you look on a Sunday? Is it explicitly the music you listen to or the things you will and won't watch? Is it the words that will or won't come out of your mouth? Well, those things might be reflective of something that does please God. But we are not, we are not in the dark as to what pleases God. The Bible has said it very explicitly. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, when we approach the scriptures in faith, that means there are things that we are not going to put before our eyes. That means there are things that are not going to come out of our mouths. That means there are things that we are not going to do as it relates to the manner of living in and around the things of this world. Obviously. There's lots of things in Scripture about those. But it's not those things themselves that please God. It is not the difference between a Romans chapter 1 man and a Romans chapter 2 man that makes the difference for God. It's between a Romans 1 or 2 man and a Romans 3 and 4 man. It's between the man either that is walking contrary in rebellion to God, that man's not going to please God, but nor is the man that is seeking to establish his own righteousness through morality. But to him that worketh not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, that faith is counted for righteousness. That faith pleases God. And then I get up in the morning and I say in faith before God, what would God have me to do today? How would God have me to present myself? How would God have me to act? How would God have me to react? What would God have me to think? What should my attitude be? And I do that in faith. And then as I say, I'm going to trust that this is how I ought to live my life, then do you know what you have in order to bring that about? In order to find yourself aligned with this book? You have grace. So that as you labor more abundantly than they all, that you might be found right before God, yet not you, but the grace of God that is with you. Not what you have done, but the results of your heart exercising faith in what God has asked of you. Now, that doesn't mean, as I've said, that there's nothing to do. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. James tells us, faith without works is dead, being alone. Wow. I just spent this whole message talking about faith alone. And then James comes in and says, yeah, but that faith can be dead if it doesn't have works involved. So we're going to see the other side of that coin next week. Next week, we'll talk about where do our works fit into this system of grace through faith. But for today, the question is this. How is your mindset as it relates to living this Christian life? Is the life that you are living one that you would say is reflective of a life of faith? Or are you, living in, uh, are you living in God's grace unto enablement to be what He wants you to be? 
Or are you, even perhaps in that believing state, because this is not just about unbelievers, stuck in the rut of doing? Rooted in vain attempts to live up to some perception in your mind of what is expected of you. Trying to conform to those that are around you. Trying to live up to what other people think you ought to be. Self-disciplining yourself and living in the guilt and the frustration of not being able to live up to the standard that you've erected in your own mind by comparing yourself one to another in a way that, of course, 2 Corinthians says is unwise. All the while denying the power of the grace of God, not just unto salvation, but in the life of the believer that ushers us into the way that God would have us to be, and thus, through faith, the rewards that God has for us. And may God help us this morning to renew in our hearts and our minds this grace-filled paradigm. Not unto the end that we fail to... Do what matters. This is not an excuse for you to continue in sin that grace may abound. We have an entire chapter of Scripture in Romans, just a couple of... Right right after Paul talks about grace, he says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, right? How should we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We're not going to do that. But not to allow that, not to allow the reality that we don't, that that we can use this, this, this concept of grace as an excuse. If you did that, you didn't hear me this morning. Don't don't say you got that from me. Rather, to allow the concept of grace to be foundational to the manner in which we build our obedience in our Christian life. To the end that we stand firmly rooted in this system of rewards that God has put in place, not just since the day Jesus died on the cross, not just since the day of his resurrection, but going all the way back to what the patriarchs had found. The rewards not reckoned by works, but by grace through faith. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.